Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campuses in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And I am back after an extended hiatus on special assignment around the United States and particularly up and down the West Coast. And it's a delightful uh, that I am back here in the fold at EdTech SR. And joining me as always is Wes Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Good evening from Oklahoma City, where uh, in two days we're going to have 3,500 students at our campus for the 50th annual Arts Festival for the Independent nice. School Association of the Southwest. And we dodged a bullet tonight. We, we had, um, this is the only time this week we've got severe weather really forecast. And, and so we had buildups that were supposed to be east of, of, uh, the city. And anyway, they, we, we've got these, this massive tent. Who knows how many people it holds? Um, but we just, I don't think we, we did, they definitely didn't have hail and I don't even think we had strong winds. So I'm the director of technology at the Cassidy School. Delighted for Jason to return and grace us with his wisdom and ed tech goodness and for the record, Jason, this is the second time I've had to remove my tape from my webcam. Yes, not <laughs> James Comey, FBI director, did not convince me. But when I heard the lead character of Mr. Robot, a series that I have started to watch, you know, say, yeah, man, it's a real deal. You need to cover that up. I was like, okay. So anyway, here we are. There it is. So um, lots of interesting things going on in the ed tech world and um, to be honest, I haven't read as much news in the last month as I probably should have, but luckily um, the news continues to produce whether I am reading or not. So lots of interesting things to do tonight. Um, Wes, do you want to start off by talking a little bit about our, our listener survey? I would be glad to, and we'll say hi to Peggy George, who is live in our chat room. Um, we have a, a listener survey, which I actually haven't checked it in a while, so I need to go ahead and check that and see. Um, we've had one person from Tasmania check it, but, you know, we, we've got some regular live folks. Um, Peggy George, uh, Jamie Camp, uh, Ben Wilkoff. Uh, we've had a few, few other people, but, um, would love to hear from you if you indeed check out the show, whether you are, uh, listening to the 32 kilobit, um, audio version that we have on the website or if you uh, watch the video on YouTube or elsewhere. And so you can find that listener survey at the shortened link wfryer.me slash edtechsr. So that's W-F-R-Y-E-R dot M-E slash edtechsr. And that shortened link will redirect you to a wonderful Google form where if you give us some feedback and let us know. And yes, we still only have one response from our Tasmanian uh, Devonport, Tasmania, uh, who says longer show open source software options, implementation and privacy issues. So this was Simon Yode who, who gave us that feedback, uh, a good many weeks ago. So just a shout out. Anybody wants to fill that out? We will be responsive to your feedback. Okay. Well, um, I, I think I'll just go ahead and jump in, um, with, uh, an open topic for tonight. There are lots of interesting things going on. Let's talk about an easy one to start off with. Um, uh, Apple announced today that two very interesting things, and we've been kind of noting the, um, 
demise of Apple. Maybe we wouldn't use that strong of a word here on the tech situation room, but obviously Apple has been evolving as a company and they seem to be losing some fanfare amongst professionals and, and categories of folks. But two interesting things uh, in the news today related to Apple. First, they announced some spec bumps on the Mac Pro. The Mac Pro is the desktop uh, version in, in, in the, the Macintosh series. Uh, you may know it as the trash can Mac. It's about four years old now and um, it is, uh, you know, about yay, yay round and, and yay tall. And um, the, the two interesting things, obviously there's a spec bump, which has been interesting um, because the uh, Apple's been very slow to update the Mac Pro. But the other message that, that Apple let folks know today was that they have been, um, they're working on a design refresh for the Mac Pro. Um, and for those of you that are not, um, you know, kind of aware of the high-end Mac uh, 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 situation. Um, four years ago, when they announced a refreshed Mac Pro, they got rid of what is often referred to as the cheese grater Mac, which is a big aluminum box um, that had kind of looked like a big, gigantic cheese grater. But the best part about that particular piece of hardware was that it was infinitely updatable. You could update all sorts of things um, in, in, in that uh, particular hardware. And in fact, my last personally purchased Mac was the Cheese Grater Mac. It's now um, uh, my, it's now nine years old. Um, it still runs just fine, I might add, but I've added more RAM to it. I've added SSD drives to it. I've replaced the video card to speed it up a little bit. It's not my daily driver anymore at home, but that was the greatest part about it. And one of the biggest complaints when when they released the, the trash can Mac Pro, uh, despite its its kind of uh, good looks, I guess, uh, eye of the beholder sort of thing, um, was that you lost a lot of the updatability that, that had existed uh, in the previous uh, Macintosh series. And professionals have been leaving Macs uh, at, at a pretty high rate. If you listen to any of the um, you know, Apple podcasts or those that are video editing uh, folks, that a lot of people have left Mac along with some software issues with their video editing library in order to move towards uh, back towards the PC and then readopt the Adobe um, uh, video and, and, and photo editing library. So really interesting today that that Apple seems to acknowledge that folks are leaving um, that platform and are apparently working on taking back um uh, those customers. So I should start off with, uh, Wes, I know that you're in a, 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 an Apple household. You are in a, at least, uh, a, a mostly Apple school district or school. So where are, where are you at with the Mac Pro debate? Well, I really haven't been a pro level user for a while. I mean, in part because the operating, the speeds have increased so much. I mean, I love to, two reasons. I've been able to do so much on my laptop because I, I don't know how many years ago I became a laptop only person. You know, I, I still have an old uh, Mac G3 Yosemite, which I really should probably get rid of. In fact, yeah, full disclosure, I won't show you with, with video, but my wife is excited for us to finally get rid of two old iMacs, a, a, a purple and white one, which is one of those. We just love it. Do we have to get rid of it? You know, uh, another one that we inherited from our parents. And anyway, you know, Laptops be, became capable of, of basically doing 
what for me was high end video editing. It was just exporting out of iMovie. It wasn't like, you know, using Final Cut Pro, um, which I dabbled with a little bit when I was at the university. The other thing that's happened was, is iOS became so powerful. So right. being able to shoot video, edit it, you know, put some, some text on, some transitions and, and publish that out. Um, really that, you know, the, the iPad is my, my best video editing tool in, in the toolkit. So I really haven't been, uh, affected that much by that at school. Uh, we have, and I mentioned this on the show multiple times, uh, invested in the 2012 pre-retina MacBook Pro, which has been a workhorse for education, built yep. in DVD. And so we are, you know, on the edge uh, of, of doing upgrades. And at this point, you know, barring some jarring announcement that Apple's not going to, for instance, produce the air anymore, um, what we're looking at, at getting in our next refresh cycle, um, will be the MacBook Air, uh, 13 inch, uh, because it has, you know, a, a, for instance, a USB drive and you don't have to have the special dongle, you know, and the pro line of laptops actually increased in price and is really just beyond what we, what we need. So, um, at, at this point in terms of literacy for our teachers and what they're comfortable with, um, even though we're, we're heavily using Google, um, giving them a Chromebook would seem like a functional downgrade when they've had a full-blown MacBook Pro. And so anyway, I, um, I'm, of course, interested in seeing the uh, continuation of Apple's Pro line and don't want to see them lose that. We've seen Microsoft really make strong efforts at, at innovating. And, and I'll say I just was at the Microsoft store, which is down from our Apple store. Very thankful to, to live in a large enough city that we have both of those. And my uh, daughter, seventh grade daughter, who's really an artist, really enjoyed playing with uh, whatever. What's it called? It's it's like an iMac for, for Microsoft, but it has the movable screen and you can the put the, the wheel on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so put the wheel on it and all this kind of stuff and uh, and just really, you know, enjoyed that a lot. So um, Apple, as we've talked about before, um, you know, is, is largely a consumer uh, focused company. Um, the iPhone, I think we have a, we had the graph in the show a month or so ago, you know, showing Apple market share, you know, and what was CPU and what was, um, what was, uh, you know, iTunes and iPods and iPhones and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, Apple is continuing to, um, you know, create great products, I think, and, and, and be a, a very stable and reliable platform for creators. Uh, but it's going to be really important. I mean, this speed bump, I guess, is a slight encouragement, but really it's the redesign and the commitment to new pro tools that's going to define whether or not, um, you know, pr professional designers and, and, uh, creators are going to stick with the platform. And on a right. related note to Adobe, um, I mentioned we're about to have this huge arts festival and we're having tons of workshops that lots of people locally as well as people flying in are going to do, you know, all kinds of workshops on things. Uh, we were going to run the Adobe cloud in our iMac lab, uh, which is about four years old. It took four minutes and 30 seconds to launch Adobe Premiere uh, on these um, older, I think they may be i3s. And so we're in, we're in a Windows lab, which is, which is about a year and a half old now. And, you know, it took 30 seconds to launch. Right. Um, yep. So those are, those are very intense uh, applications that require, you know, some horses as far as RAM and right. processor power. Uh, so Apple needs to step up and, 
um, from Adobe standpoint, you know, they're, they are happy for you to run, I think, whatever hardware you want. Um, but the, um, the, the trend lines have definitely moved from, you know, oh, I've got to have a Mac because I'm a, I'm a creative, you know, to that's, that's really not, not the, not the case right now. And, and Apple's next move is going to be critical in terms of defining whether they can keep that market or not. Right. Well, and, and a couple notes just broadly about the Apple brand. By the way, there, uh, uh, Peggy in our chat room noted that something that I had missed in, in the early articles, they also dropped the, Price of the low-end Mac Pro by a thousand dollars as well as well as the spec bunk, and I will say that uh, you know I had some some help purchasing mine in two thousand eight, whereas today I'd be buying it in cash myself, and um, I you know I'm not I'm not in the market for a four thousand dollar desktop. Like the bottom line is is that you can spend a thousand dollars now and buy a used super advanced workstation off of your know, lease from two or three years ago that has three times the processing power of a Mac pro. And I think that's a, a, you know, it's, it's a hard piece there, but you know, one thing I will note is that when I go to conferences that involve uh, teachers, um, especially ones that are kind of ed tech uh, identified folks, Macs outnumber PCs two to one, three to one, iPhones, uh, I, the iPhone gap is not as large because I do think a lot of nerds do like playing around with Android. So that's probably closer to 50-50, but it's still, Apple still has a lot of cachet um, in the market, which leads to my second article related to this. Um, the article is a little tongue-in-cheek because it notes the fact that Google is the one that sponsored the survey, but teens think that Google is cooler than Apple, according to a Google-sponsored survey. Um and I, I would encourage you to read the actual research. They have a link to it there. But uh, Apple is closer to Nike um, in regards to its um, um, to its cachet with with younger uh, uh, younger buyers, younger consumers. Um, whereas uh, Google and uh, YouTube are both in the top three. And I, and I got to say that 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 probably is a change. Although, um, and I have a relatively small sample size here because I don't I don't. I'm not physically around teenagers as much as I used to be when I was in a classroom environment, but you know, the, the teens that I am around are predominantly iPhone users and they would rather use a, you know, how old is the iPhone four and four S now? Those are very dated phones. They'd rather use those phones than, you know, you can buy a very nice Android phone now for, uh, you know, retail, like unsubsidized for 200 bucks. So, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that I do think that for a lot of teens, the Apple brand still has a lot of cachet. Two thoughts. One, I'd be interested in a recommendation from, from you or anybody else as far as Android, uh, low end Android phone that can run Google Expeditions, right? Google Expeditions has come out of beta. Anybody yeah. can use it now to go out and purchase a bunch of iPod touches is a, still a pretty expensive prospect. Yep. So whatever, you know, uh, spec wise would be a, a used, uh, Android phone. I'd be interested because it, you know, for, for our younger students who, who don't have phones and aren't allowed to have phones at school, you know, if we want to do Google expeditions, uh, that would involve, you know, the, the, the Google cardboard or, or some kind of VR. Anyway, I'd be interested in that. And then the other thought that I had about that, um, was one to one. You know, last week, yeah. uh, Cheryl Oaks and Alice Barr were guests and I was fascinated to get an update on one to one and, and they talked, they're, they're in the fourth, four-year cycle, ending the fourth four-year cycle at, at, uh, at Alice's school for one-to-one and, and, and Cheryl as well, but they've gone a different way. And Cheryl's school has gone really a lot Chrome and Chromebook. And when you think about one-to-one, at one point, you know, we really 
I guess some, who knows, I was listening to lots of Apple people at probably at this point, but I mean, the, the thinking if you were one-to-one was that the school needed to provide the device and it needed to be a uniform device. And right. we certainly have a much more fractured environment in terms of, of computing now. And it's pretty interesting to think about, well, I think what really needs to drive it is what do you want to do? And oftentimes we don't as teachers know all the things we can do. And so you know, it, it, that's, the, that's the role of, uh, the technology department and, and leaders as far as right. being able to show possibilities and options when you, when you look at that. Um, you know, we're, we're not one to one. I don't foresee us moving to one, one to one, you know, anytime really soon. Uh, but we are BYOD and we've got more of these, you know, devices running around. So it really is a, a more complex and, um, well, I mean, fractured is one way to look at it, and it's just a more complicated environment to say what is the best fit for your school environment because certainly looking at a Chromebook, as we were talking before the show started, you know, in terms of cost and, and features um, and and function, you know, is is pretty stunning. But yet, you know, depending on what we want to do and what we want to create, um, you know, a Chromebook is not going to be a great device to run around and shoot video with and make green screens and, you know, and, and other kinds of things. So I think that uh, hopefully we're going to continue to see Apple's commitment to education. I think we did see that last week. We talked about the drop in the iPad prices, uh, right. the new iPad, which is not uh, an Air 3 or whatever. It's just iPad, but it actually came down to 329 for the 32 gig model. That's really good for education. Yep. Uh, but it's, again, fascinating to hear Alice and Cheryl talk about Maine, where at one point Apple was going to push everyone to say, look, you need to, to adopt the iPad because our vision of one-to-one has shifted, not from the laptop, but to have an iPad. Well, at schools like Alice's where the, where the kids and teachers have had laptops for a long time, that's a functional downgrade in many right. ways. And, you know, they've opted to pay more and stick with their laptops. So anyway, there's just a lot of, you know, it's certainly never been a one size fit all and it's, and it's not that way. Um, and I, and I think it's, uh, it, it's really an interesting challenge to think about if, if you're not one-to-one today, what sort of a recommendation would you make to to your uh, trustees or your school board, your administration in terms of uh, what makes the most sense? I've recommended to some of our team, you know, ideally the conversation is led by what do you want to do? And based on what we want to do, we will right. select devices. Um, and uh, anyway, Apple's going to continue to be a big player, but as we talked about before the show, and we've talked about this before, very exciting to see what uh, companies are doing with the touch interface with the Chromebook. And I had a, a teacher talking to me about that, in fact, today, um, because that could be a real game changer with the way that that brings the App Store to the Chrome experience and, uh, you know, kind of tabletizes potentially um, a Chromebook. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, we, we probably... Um uh, at some point, maybe you need to dig into the Chromebook, uh, issue, like, in a whole show to talk about, like, the advantages and disadvantages of that. I, I still get that question a lot, um, uh, about, you know, is a Chromebook, like, is, is a one-to-one implementation widely in district with Chromebooks a good idea or a bad idea? And of course, you know, it, it's, you know, maybe is the, the answer to that question always. But, you know, I, I, one thing I'd like to remind folks of is that you can go buy, um, a whole lot of $100 Chromebooks, there will be nothing but frustration for you, right? They, they're slow. They're not, they're not multitaskers. They're barely unitaskers. They're dated. They will get updated much longer. And even if you can manage them well and roll them out and you can get, you know, a lot of vendors talk about their white glove service to, to set them up all for you. So you don't even have to go through the process of setting those up. 
like that that's a great experience maybe for for the tech person but those are going to be terrible terrible devices in the kids hands whereas if you buy a $400 Chromebook it's probably better the iPad may be better or worse depending on what you're doing with it there's just so many factors here that are in play and i still think that if you're maintaining them you could probably get away with 7 or 8 year old PC lab uh, to do a lot of very productive tasks if you're managing and you're taking care of those desktops and you've updated them right you've taken advantage of you know cheaper RAM and SSD drives to turn those into faster uh, platforms. And Windows 10 on a seven or eight seven or eight year old computer is uh, a perfectly a perfectly good operating system. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, I don't think Lily has ever made an appearance in the podcast. Lily has just spoken, spoken for the first time. Yeah. So, so yeah. she uh, uh, yeah she's a very demanding cat. So um, <laughs> we're gonna try that and see what happens. So um, that is the uh, that's the lowdown on Apple. And uh, you know, and I gotta say. Um, it's hard for me to say that Apple's kind of lost me, but they, they've kind of lost me. So um, I am now, and I've always been a multi-platform guy anyways, but I regularly use either a Chromebook or a four or five-year-old uh, Windows PC. And at work, I sometimes use my iMac, but more often I'm using a uh, you know Windows 10 desktop machine. So well, for the record, yes, our diversity hopefully makes us better, and I, I'm, right. I'm still still the Apple fanboy. We'll be uh, headed to Jackson Hole with with Shelly and our girls to do iPad Media Camp at the end of June, and I'm actually looking at uh, a new badge system as far as looking at, at you know iPad um, iPad products and things we can do. So I would like to take us, if I could, to a section I titled AI, but I I really think. Well, maybe mistitled because it just has more to do with brain intelligence and transhumanism. I, I, I think I just did a shout out last week to the latest National Geographic, which I should have grabbed. It just the paper version came. I was reading the iPad version. Um, and I think the article is called The Next Human. It's interestingly not available electronically or it wasn't last week, but it's talking about um, you know, how we are being modified and we'll have opportunities to modify ourselves as uh, as humans, uh, but also, you know, in, in vitro, uh, embryonic, uh, you know, pre, uh, fertilization, you know, genetic, um, type, type things. And so this links to a couple, a couple movies and a couple articles. Um, actually the first, uh, reference, this, my, our son was home for spring break this last week, which was, which was great. And, uh, but before he left, we went down, we have a really, uh, wonderful called Warren Theater that has this two story IMAX screen or whatever. And so we saw this ghost in the shell, you know, movie that, uh, is interesting for, for lots of reasons, but, uh, certainly from a special effects standpoint and, and the idea is they take a brain and, you know, put it in this, in, in this synthetic body. Well, there, there's a great video that, that I put in the show notes, um, how Weta Workshop made Ghost in the Shell's robot skeleton. And so hundreds of parts that were 3D printed to create this actual physical skeleton. So where there's a lot of, of virtual special effects that they do in the film, um, some of that is, is actual, uh, you know, physically printed items, which, you know, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, what a workshop, you know, New Zealand, great, great, cool um, uh, artistry and, and amazing artistry and, and creation there. So um, that movie um, and, and the whole idea about, you know, what are we becoming and, and what are we going to uh, evolve into um, links to this Elon Musk article. So this is The Verge on March 27th. Elon Musk launches Neuralink, a venture to merge the human brain with AI. And, <laughs> you know, Elon Musk with uh, with Tesla, 
uh, with SpaceX and with Solar City, uh, three different ventures, um, is is uh, investing in this. And I think I mentioned, er- you know, early on the on the show, I, I've listened to a couple uh, wonderful books about um, DARPA and the Pentagon. Um, I'll have to pull up my Audible to to get her name, but the Pentagon's brain was one of these. Um, Let's see. And uh, I'm sitting here flipping through. This makes for great radio as Wes looks <laughs> through his 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 uh, audible to try to find her name. Uh, I'm not going to find it. Um, uh, but you know, DARPA, the the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, they say is 10 to 20 years ahead of where we are as consumers, and we are seeing glimpses right now of. Of the of the uh, brain to computer connection, um, sometimes in the context of of someone who's disabled who doesn't have capacity and is able to to do things. They may be a paraplegic and they you know can't just move a cursor on the screen. Now they they can do you know all kinds of things. Um, Annie Jacobson is her name, uh, author of the Pentagon's Brain. So anyway, interesting to see Elon do this and then connecting to this with this whole idea of intelligence and what are we becoming. Uh, this is a fascinating article. This was a Guardian article from March 28th. Alien intelligence, the extraordinary minds of octopuses and other cephalopods. And it's this over a decade study of this scientist who has recognized that there's incredible intelligence, you know, in cephalopods. Amazingly, they've got a very large brain for the size of their body and a very short uh, lifespan. They only live for about a year or so. But he talks about how as we think about intelligence, we're, we tend to be, you know, um, uh, anthrop- anthropomorphic, right? That means as a human, I'm projecting my own I- I- ideas and-, and views into that. And so, you know, just using a tool may not mean intelligence and, you know, what is intelligence and how do you measure that? Um, and so the other shout out to the movie is uh, Arrival, which uh, came out, you know, I don't know, five five months ago or so. But really great a good, movie. Great movie. Uh, it's about a linguist, really, who's the, the heroine of the film, who uh, the Department of Defense gets to help um, you know, figure out the language, which is a, what they, what do they call it? It's a, it's a visual orthographic, I don't know, graphic, uh, graphic language, but you know, just cool stuff thinking about intelligence and thinking about how we measure it. So Jason, would you agree if, as a PhD student to, to, uh, get hooked up to the, the most advanced, I'm going to scan your brain and, and see what knowledge and intelligence you have kind of technology. And, and does this stuff just totally creep you out or, or do you uh, do you think we're we're just living in Nirvana, where we're going to have these amazing possibilities of all becoming uh, cyborgs and <laughs> solving the world's problems because we're going to have augmented powers that you know take us far much further than we could otherwise? Well, I mean, I, I think that it would be it would be very strange for me if through all this technological development we don't try to eventually merge them somehow directly with 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 the human body. Like it would be very strange for me if that's not where this is going. And I think there are implications to that, and I think that there are certainly things we want to be careful and, and, and conscious about. But I think that's the in- inevitable uh, inevitable direction we're going into. And in fact, some of my own research about um, I, I've been spending some time researching uh, uh, the way students get information uh, as part of my um, otherwise secret dissertation. And um, the um, one of the things that I've run into is that you know I, I I tend to be a little a little leery about people that that are accusatory of people that are are older. And I guess I I want to put myself in the category of older tonight um, to say that you know that that you just don't understand and that you're you're um, 
you know, you're, you're taking a, a, a data view of, of X, Y, and Z, because I think that, that in a lot of cases, learning hasn't changed a whole lot in the last 40 or 50 years. We understand it better than we did 40, 50 years ago, but the human brain, all the reporting that happened 10, 15 years ago about, about the human brain actually physically changing the way it learns because of technology has not become true. But I am very interested in, and I think there is something to the fact that we may be on the verge of having learning change in the verge, I mean, 50, 100 years, on the verge of learning change from the standpoint of if a machine can, without you interfacing with it, provide you real-time data and information and knowledge for you to, in order to, to learn something complex, that's very different than I, you know, I learned to Google something, so I don't need to learn that data anymore, right? And so, um, yeah, there, there's, there's something here. You know, I'm pretty convinced I'll be dead before that, you know, we see the really, you know, super sci-fi stuff. Like, it's obvious we're going to see Jetson stuff, right? In, in, in our lifetimes, West, we're going to see a lot of Jetsons, right? There's going to be, um, uh, driverless cars everywhere and we're going to see, you know, massive screens everywhere. That's the promise I haven't seen yet where everything turns into a screen you can interact with. And, um, I'm pretty convinced we'll develop some technologies to help deal with climate change and that sort of thing. But the really futuristic stuff, like the brain on computer stuff is probably a long time away, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't start preparing for it now. And I also think that the very earliest versions of that will occur in the next few decades. And so we need to be thinking about that, talking about how that uh, applies in the classroom and, and start thinking about, you know, are we preparing students in a world where that could be the case? Yeah, here's the here's the uh, uh, iPad version of of the uh, the lead article there for the next human. I think on a real practical level, you know, we need to encourage young people to go into uh, medicine and science and biotechnology. Um, that's uh, the I've done a shout out to um, the book The Industries of the Future by Alec Ross, and he talks a lot about genomics and biotech and what a huge thing that's that's going to going to be and and already is. Um, and so I, uh, on a, on a personal note, I'll, I'll, I'll share one more little, uh, aside to this. Um, I'll, I'll try to put this into the show notes, but the, uh, a podcast I listen to periodically is called Click. It's a BBC podcast, a tech podcast. And at, this blew my mind, um, when they were having this artist talk about how they had done EEGs, which connect, you know, uh, little, um, sensors to the brain. And then different artists were uh, connecting those to LED lights and to soundscapes. And so people were able to use brain waves. And then you visibly saw these, you know, displayed through this, these, these uh, series of LED lights and then heard what they were thinking because those brain waves were being translated, you know, into soundscapes. Um, and of course, in the context of prosthetics and being able to, you know, give people a sight and, and, and the idea of, you know, being able to see in different spectrums. This is in fact something that's in the, the ghost in the shell that one of the guys gets blinded. Um, and so he, he, he gets artificial eyes that enable him to see, you know, in the infrared and, and the x-ray and things like that. Um, I, I, I honestly wonder how far we are. I know we do heart transplants and I don't know how far, I think we're still a ways away from being able to, with the optic nerve, you know, actually do an eye uh, transplant. But um, I would, a friend of mine uh, at, a, at a, I think it was at Maker Maker Fair New York a number of years ago, um, did a, a DIY 
you know, EEG or encephalogram or whatever, where you can hook something up to your brain and then actually see, you know, signals and things like that coming out of the computer. And it's, it, I've heard people say we're, we're kind of just on the, it's like we're, we're the satellite at looking at planet earth, you know, just seeing clouds move. And soon we're going to be, you know, zooming in like Google Earth to be able to see, you know, cars and people and things like that with with brain science. But uh, certainly there's an implication here for the for the classroom and schools to say, you know, let's let's try to find ways to get kids turned on to to STEM and to biotech. Uh, And certainly science fiction has always been a way to, you know, think about what might be coming in the future and, and inspire, you know, folks to think about what they're going to do with their lives. So sure. Anyway, several different By the way, I, there. I just dropped a, an article in from um, statnews.com that uh, doctors are looking at a full human eye transplant within the decade. So stay tuned. Wow. All right. Where should we go next? Okay. Well, I have a related topic that, that is a little more practical maybe to that, that notion, but, um, there's a really wonderful article in today's CNET that I read on the bus to work today of smart home tech helps veterans overcome their broken bodies. And basically it's, it's part of a longer series that CNET does about assistive technology for those that, that, that have a variety of disabilities. But what's really interesting about that is they mention that the Amazon Echo is being used in, in some cases as a VA purchase device in order to enable uh, disabled veterans to live more normal lives. And it goes into some detail about the challenge of that and older assistive technologies versus newer assistive technologies. And um, Wes, you may have had some experience with this as, as a tech director and working with schools over the past 20 years, but um, you know, there, the assistive technology has been around for you know decades, right? But the stuff that we uh, you know were buying for kids that, that had all varieties of, of disabilities in the 80s and 90s is now a $1.99 app on an iPad. So things have changed pretty dramatically. But I was really interested in both the Amazon Echo and the virtual personal assistant as a, a kind of a, a conduit for those that, that struggle physically um, uh, uh, and have disabilities that, that, that render their, their physical presence uh, uh, unable to deal with the, their environment and how voice control can help that. And then it goes into some detail about the challenge of that. They mentioned in particular there was a Bluetooth to, I think it was a Bluetooth to IR blaster um, uh, device that essentially you could hook up via Bluetooth and then send out television signals, right? So essentially Alexa becomes a, a voice remote, right? So, you know, um, hey, and I'm not going to mention her name here, um, you know, uh, uh, turn down the volume in the same way that I could, hey, Google, you know, what's the temperature outside? Oh, like the volume's down, but you get the idea, right? That that you know that that voice interaction is a pretty important deal. And then they mentioned specifically that the biggest challenge has been there's a lot of energy around this space, but a lot of the startups aren't lasting long enough to provide support for some of the hardware devices. But enormously interesting article, and um, you know, I think the assistive technology question um, it, it becomes even more interesting in a world where cheap hardware can provide a lot of interesting opportunities. Several connections to this. I, I had sort of a John Luke Picard moment um, tonight. I, I mentioned on the show a, a night or two or a week or two ago this Avian app for the Apple TV, which lets you visualize your tweets. And, um, you know, so I'm giving a voice command you know, <laughs> to my Apple TV and it's going to like computer engage. Right, right, right. <laughs> a little bit like that. Um, 
And the thing is, this when we talk about assistive technology, sometimes that's the entry point. In fact, I had a, a conversation with one of our learning specialists this last week, and she's been using some iPads and, um, you know, the doors that uh, an assistive device can open up for some learners can absolutely be hugely game-changing. And they can be things that sort of nobody can argue with, right? Like if the dyslexic student, you know, is is able to right. um, to read better or to be able to access this information and, and, and understand it and learn it where they weren't able to do that before, it's it's harder to say, well, I kind of worry about their screen time. You know, I mean, you're because you're seeing that in the same way that a prosthetic, you know, would let would let somebody walk. Um, you know, it's and, and I'm interested in that from an educational standpoint, because Sometimes we might think that we sort of need to feed the, the the average learner, whatever that person is, you know, here's the sandwich that we're serving today at school. But really what we need to be doing is differentiating and providing a customized learning experience for every single student. And so um, in my own context where um, I think there's there's a, a considerable uh, degree of trepidation and fear when it comes to technology and uh, some reticence in terms of, of adoption, you know, looking at how adaptive technologies and, um, and, and technologies that, you know, open up doors for students that they, you know, they just wouldn't be able to learn in the same ways. Th that's really a big deal. And that even ties to what we were talking about with one-to-one because, -one, yeah, can I get you a Chromebook? Sure. Does that have some text-to-speech and some other capabilities? Yeah. You know, what about the specialized apps? Like you said, I don't remember the name of it, but there's one that was like a $400 just, or no, it was even more than that. I think it was thousands of dollars and the iPad version was 200. But you know, when you compared to buying all this hardware, I think that there was something, um, that, uh, students who, um, were needing to like visually represent things and be able to, you know, tap on icons and things like that. Um, I'll have to figure out what, what, what app that was. But anyway, that, that's just, that's a really important place for us as educational technologists to be advocates. Um, and I just had our, um, our uh, director of psychological services actually talked to me about accessibility and, uh, and share an article with me and, and yeah. talk, talk about how, you know, we need to be champions for this. So uh, yeah. important well, stuff. And I would be remiss if I didn't share the second article that I've, I've, I've shared tonight. Um, and I think I even mentioned this in the podcast back when this first aired, but there's a really wonderful note to self episode, um, from August 2016 where Manush Samarodi, the host, uh, uh, tackles the sticky question of do we need braille in the era of iPads? And it is an enormously interesting article that, or I'm sorry, podcast that dives through the, the very interesting, uh, question of, you know, cheap iPads and, and, you know, if you think an iPad's expensive, compare it to a Braille typing machine or buying books on Braille, you'll notice the iPad is an incredible bargain. But should we not teach Braille in an era where the iPad will read everything to you? And what I mean everything, I mean everything. Like there are apps that will read you something that based on the, that's in the camera, right? Which means you can hold your iPhone up to you know, a picture turns into text and that text is, is, is read to you. They're terrible and not super great, but they keep getting better and better and better with every generation. And that's the kind of stuff that you're competing with, with Braille. So, you know, uh, and, and I think that, that you've probably got a healthy dose of this, uh, since we've been broadcasting this particular, uh, podcast, you know, all this stuff comes in, 
you know, with debate. All this stuff comes with middle ground, uh, that there's no technology that, that solves everything. And you're introducing lots of, of, of other things into the environment when you introduce tech. So, you know, proceed with caution. So great podcast. I recommend listening to it. Awesome. Well, I'd like to take us to a little privacy discussion. <clears throat> um, I've, uh, and I, by the way, Peggy, I just put that in the show notes. The article, uh, was, uh, blind kids touch phone, touch screen phones and the end of braille. And then the, the other one was smart home tech, uh, helps veterans overcome their broken bodies. So in the Google doc show notes, it's under smart stuff. Um, right under that privacy surveillance, uh, two articles, New York times on March 29th, what the repeal of online privacy protections mean for you. And then Quincy Larson, who is just a blog post. It's not a mainstream media post, but uh, February 14th, uh, I think it's a medium post called I'll never bring my phone on an international flight again. Neither should you. And so the New York times article uh, basically says, you know, this, this isn't going to really affect us a lot because these were rules that the Obama administration put into effect that haven't, you know, gone into effect yet. I mean, they, they made these rules for the FCC, but they didn't legislate them. They were just mandated. And so the Trump administration is able to say, well, we're not, you know, we're not doing those anymore. I think there's a lesson for administrations here because we've seen several things happen with respect to the sort of executive fiat that, you know, it was easier perhaps for uh, the Obama team to do, but it, it's less persistent because, you know, the yep. next administration can just come along and say, well, we're not doing that. And we're seeing that happen, I think, with, with uh, net neutrality, unfortunately, with respect to service providers and some things that are happening there. But um, – <laughs> Do people realize that every single Google search or whatever search engine you've used, your entire browsing history is for sale by your service provider, potentially? Um, one of the implications for this is we all should contact whoever our service provider is, find out what their policy is. You know, are they selling that? Um, just this last spring break, uh, when my son was home and we were looking, we've, he's got a Mac Pro and we've got Windows because he's using the SolidWorks 3D design for, for engineering stuff. And anyway, he's got, he's about both sides and we were looking at clearing out software and, and, and Tor is on there, uh, cause I, I put Tor on there, uh, earlier. And if you don't know, Tor is a program which allows you to, uh, as anonymously as is possible today, browse the internet because you, um, have your IP address basically hop between multiple places. And, you know, and I mentioned to him, you know, if, if you're going to do any, any kind of research that might land you on a watch list, um, you know, it, it, it might be good to go ahead and do that through Tor. Um, because this is, this is real in terms of, and we've talked about Cambridge Analytica and campaigns and the, and the dark side of, of big data. Um, our histories of, of what we search for, what we like on Facebook, uh, all of these things companies are gathering. And it's not just a matter of whether you say, well, I trust Mark Zuckerberg. He's okay. You know, or my service provider is nice. Um, the, all of these things can be hacked <laughs> and anyone can get, get access to them. So I think that we really need strong advocacy for privacy. I think that we need people to recognize the statement, which we've talked about this before on the show. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a criminal. So why should I care? You know, if everything I do is being surveilled and being recorded, we all should care. We all should have the human right to have a private discussion that is not going to be recorded and potentially, you know, used by, by someone else. And so I think that's the big implication there. And then on the, 
the international flight thing, um, I think that I'll be taking a flight to Vietnam in, in August for a conference. I've actually got to write a paper this month, uh, to do that. And, um, I think Jason, I'm going to look at that Android phone that you bought last time you went to Europe and yep. consider, you know, following your lead with that. And with my phone, I got to figure out how to get media. I may just bring stuff on a Kindle. Um, because literally when you're in customs, coming back to the United States, you are not in the United States. They can hold you there as long as they want to, including saying you must unlock this phone. What the article points out is they don't know, um, how many accounts you have and they, they could also ask, you know, try to force you to surrender your passwords, you know, to make you log into things. I don't think that's going to happen. But again, the te- here's the big point. The technology is there already where they can take a phone and suck everything off of it and then put it into their database. And there's legislation now trying to propose that, you know, law enforcement officials at all levels should be able to have access to all of this stuff. Well, okay, maybe that sounds fine, but realize that all of this is hackable. So do you want every text message saved on your phone, every contact, every note, you know, I mean, think about everything that's in your phone. We probably don't think about that a whole lot. Uh, so we need to advocate for privacy and we need to think about, you know, what are we taking with us on an international flight? And I, if I take my phone or my iPad, which I will, I will probably go ahead and uh, do a, a complete restore and take them through customs both into Vietnam and out without any data on them and, uh, you know, consider how I will bring media that I will consume on the flight, um, without being logged into my iCloud and all that other kind of stuff. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm crazy. But remember, this is the guy who's now putting the tape on his webcam. So I've probably gone over some kind of surveillance paranoia, um, cliff. Well, I, I think that the very positive note is that uh, although I'm glad that, that people are starting to read articles that suggest the real story, not that, that privacy protections are being taken away, they just weren't being implemented. Um, and, 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 and I will say just briefly that, you know, I, I, you need to think about do you trust your internet service provider? And honestly, I don't know what internet service provider that I would trust because they so far have not treated me with a kind of, of customer service respect that suggests that they're going to be, you know, um, super proactive about my privacy. But there has been a lot of articles, and I would refer you to my favorite reference blog, which is Lifehacker, about steps you can take, things like, um, you know, a VPN, for example, or um, uh, uh, steps to, to be more private about, you know, surfing for sensitive topics and that sort of thing. And so if nothing else, like I understand uh, that the situation is is not as bad as purported. I think in a lot of people's panic, but we still, I think if, if anything else, having a conversation about privacy and about, you know, your browsing history and what it says about you and yada, 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 I think is an important part of, of where this discussion is going. Peggy's also uh, sent us an article that we'll have to, to take up maybe on uh, next week's show uh, from Tidbits that, that has a, a pretty powerful quotation. I'll just read it quickly. Relying on the government to protect your privacy is like asking a peeping Tom to install your window blinds. So, um, yeah, sure. that's from Internet activist John Perry Barlow. And shout out to Marta, who is joining us from, I would assume, Tegucigalpa, Honduras again tonight. So making the EdTech Situation Room the international show that you hopefully love and want to come back for more of. Okay. Well, um, maybe let's do another quick one here and then we could call it a week. Um, actually this one is pretty quick. Um, 
uh, an update this week, um, Google Wi-Fi, which is the uh, my current uh, Wi-Fi hardware provider. Um, I will say that it's not solved all my Wi-Fi issues in my home. Um, I am now of the belief that my home has a structure which is uh, challenging to Wi-Fi signals. I'm on my third router, and it's not been solved. So to be clear, though, they're not your Google's not your service provider. This is your router and access. My, yeah, yeah. This is my hardware that I utilize right. uh, to to provide uh, Wi-Fi around my home. So uh, the reason why I like I still like the the Google Wi-Fi model is that Google um, it, you know, is intending on. Um, providing like advanced features in, in an app that you used to have to go and dig around your router's firmware for, which meant logging into an administrative interface was oftentimes dated and hard to use. So it's, I think it's a great step forward. But one of the things they're now offering is the ability to, um, and they're aiming this at parents, but basically for either individual devices or for the whole house, turn off the internet from X hour to X hour. Um, you know, dinner time, sleep time, whatever that is. And I, and I, you know, we don't need to go into super deep details about because we covered the distraction issue before, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a little challenging because, um, you know, obviously, you know, if you have a cell phone, then you're then just going to use your, your cell data. So, you know, it's not like it's a panacea in that regard, but I do think it's really great that, that Google is, you know, working on providing parents with tools to, you know, is it draconian to just turn it off after 9 p.m.? Maybe, but I do think that, that, that parents taking more proactive control uh, to help their kids make better decisions of that. I mean, I've read numerous articles about the psychological impacts of kids staying up all night waiting for text messages and um, in, in, interruption of sleep. And then, of course, you know, uh, texting without sleep is not a good thing and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I, I think it's really great that the technology companies are working so hard to provide tool sets for parents to make better decisions on behalf of their kids. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, on the this ties to the Apple thing, but we're, we're still using the, the uh, Apple um, – uh, what is it called? Uh, air caps, was it capsule, time capsule and, mm -hmm. and the, the, the Apple router. But I think that whole group at Apple, we maybe had this article a few weeks ago has been cut. And so there's rumors that Apple is going to leave that, um, you know, that possible niche of the market. Um, I, I, again, hopefully we're going to see them continue to innovate because seeing Google innovate in this space is really good. Um, now having, uh, helped contribute to the decision-making process of the new firewall at school. We went with a smooth wall firewall. We've been with Sonic Wall for over 15 years. Uh, smooth Wall's got over half of the UK's market and has really robust reporting for education. And um, anyway, just seeing all of the possibilities and what a next-generation firewall uh, does for your organization, you know, it's, it's there, there's a word for that, but it's like, you know, the IT demands of the enterprise um, are also at home in the Internet of Things in terms of the hostility that's present in the environment, the folks that would like to, to hack your devices. We talked about the Mirai botnet, you know, over a month ago, which was this first Internet of Things massive attack that led to, um, uh, you know, people people were able to gain access to webcams and other Internet of Things devices in people's homes and then use yep. those to ping devices and have attacks. So anyway, I'm I'm uh, continuing to be encouraged by your positive comments about the Google router and may may uh, foray down that road when we what, have $300 of disposable income. Is that what that costs, basically? Um, yeah, it, it, well, the the set of three does. Um, I'll tell you, and just because I think you know, it, it's, it's important to remind our audience that we are super nerds here, um, one of the ways I dealt with one of the Wi-Fi issues is I set up an old router as a repeater 
Uh, it was also, it also had the Google firmware on it, but, uh, the problem was, was that after a couple hours, it, I think it was creating conflicts and it wasn't working as well together as it should have. But the second router is what allows the other half of my house to get Wi-Fi. Well, really other than the other half of the house, you know, from bedtime to early AM. So I bought a smart, I bought a smart, a smart plug that is Wi-Fi controlled that turns on the router at 9 p.m. at night, and it turns it off at 5 a.m. the next morning. Sweet. Look at you. That, so, was, that, was that the Wii Wiimote switch or whatever? It was, yeah. Okay. And I could also turn it on via my cell phone as well. You have reached a new level of geekdom with that, so that's okay. good. But we would just so, we would expect just as much. Well, and I got to say, like, after months of fussing and, you know, the, the, the Google Wi-Fi, it's a little tiny thing. It's not a huge thing with antennas on it. We only bought one. of I didn't buy the three-pack, three, three pack, I just bought one. But the Google Wi-Fi was not enough. I didn't have enough oomph to get from yeah. where my point of uh, point of, of, of service was to, um, you know, to to the, the bedrooms on, on – uh, we have an addition on our house – um, and so that was my, that was my clever solution is that it didn't, it didn't, they didn't seem to work well with both hardware together, but you know, nine o'clock at night to 5am the next morning is the time we might be using internet yeah. devices in, in the bedroom wing of our home. So right. that's what I've done. So, uh, well, of course, turning the Wi-Fi off doesn't turn off the cellular, right? I was just thinking about what that might mean for our girls, but hey, you got your, your LTE internet. So yeah, I don't know. And, and for us as well. Marta is asking in the chat, Jason, how's your Google Home working out? I'm just going to type an answer there. The Google Home is great. Um, and Google announced last week more integrations with more hardware platforms. And although um, it's my understanding is that pales in comparison to the Alexa because the Alexa has uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of software and hardware integrations. So far, I'm, I'm really happy with it. And, you know, really for me, it's it's 90% of the time, it's just a, a Wi-Fi speaker. I'm sorry, a Bluetooth speaker that talks to the network. So it's not a, it's not that complex. But uh, uh, it's it's pretty great, and um, uh, actually, I taught something new last week. Um, I can now uh, have it ring my phone, so I could say, "Hey," then the word Google. I'm trying not to set this off. Um, I said, uh, "Call my phone" or "Find my phone," and it'll it'll call my cell phone. So it uh, it took an if script to do that. So it's pretty sweet. Um, and then the other other uh, interesting question from Peggy in the chat room is that uh, about the Google interface um, uh, that the Google the Google Wi-Fi doesn't have a, a browser based interface. You have to use an app to do that. And I will admit that I don't find that to be very palatable. But um, you know, I'm more likely to have a cell phone in my hand or a, a tablet in my hand than a, than a laptop nowadays. And so I haven't really run into many issues where that's been much of an issue. Um, that is a criticism of the, the, the Google, the, the Google on devices and the Google Wi-Fi mesh devices. But um, so far, so good. I've been very happy with the interface and you can do some cool stuff with it. Awesome. All right. Well, shall we do some, some geeks of the week? Sure. Um, Let me go first. Yeah, go ahead. All right, so mine is actually something that we've ordered and has not arrived at school, but I'm extremely excited about it, and I hope it works because I was visiting with our, our headmaster about it today. It's called the Projector. Uh, one of the challenges we have is uh, we're predominantly an Apple you know, campus. Uh, most of our teachers have uh, MacBook laptops, but uh, we've got a number of, of folks who use Windows. We've got Chromebooks. Um, and so when it comes to projection um, and people who, who want to come into a conference room or auditorium and, and be able to stream, not everybody can can do um, uh, 
uh, AirPlay streaming from an Apple device. So I've been listening to this wonderful podcast, and originally they were called the the GAFE podcast for Google Apps for Education. Of course, they've changed this now to um, the G Suite. So they call themselves the Giuseppe Admins podcast, but this was from episode 12, and this was just one of the what's new cool things that they do, sort of like we do Geeks of the Week, and it was Projector. So Projector is about 300 bucks, um, definitely, you know, like twice as expensive as a, as a low-end Apple TV, but it promises uh, streaming compatibility with Windows devices, with Chromebooks, with uh, Macs. It can have a local network so that if you don't even want to put it on Wi-Fi and just let it be its own hotspot so it doesn't impact your enterprise Wi-Fi, it will do that. Or you can put it on enterprise and um you know, we've got a lot of Apple TVs that are segmented on a separate VLAN, virtual LAN of the network. And we have this Bonjour gateway that lets our teachers from their Wi-Fi's, you know, connect over there. And anyway, um, our headmaster has a, a, a Windows Surface book and uh, would love to be able to not just have his iPhone, you know, stream up to the to the uh, projector when he's, you know, meeting with our trustees, but he'd like to, to use his, his service book. So I'm excited if that'll work and I will report in later to let you know how our testing goes. And if this proves to be the dream multi-platform wireless streaming projection device that we hope it will be. Wow. That has a ton of integrations with other or with uh, software platforms too, including a lot of video conference platforms. Yeah. Keep it up to date on that one. Oof, I think that's a really great thing. So um, my geek of the week is that, um, and I'm pretty sure we've mentioned this before in other contexts, but um, I have taken the plunge and I've turned on two-factor authentication on every single account that I can do it. And I've, I've become just security paranoid enough that uh, I used to do it. I, I've, I've had two-factor authentication turned on my personal Gmail account for five or six years now. So that's not new to me, but... Um, recently, I, I have decided that not only should all my work accounts have two-factor authentication turned on for anything that I have student data uh, on, which would include you know all my email accounts, uh, cloud-based document accounts, etc., but even Facebook now, I've turned it on. And for those who are aware, two-factor authentication um, uh, forces you to have a password um, plus usually a physical item which um, uh, 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 allows you to, to, to denote it's you. So in, in Google, the way I have two-factor authentication turned on is that when I'm logging into a, a browser or a Google account for the first time on a browser, that it texts me a six-digit number to my cell phone. So that's the physical device I need to have to be able to do that. Um, I have to warn you that that uh, there's all sorts of ways you can lock yourself out of accounts if you're not careful with two-factor authentication. So I'm going to refer you to twofactorauth.org, which is a wonderful um, uh, a website that will walk you through some of the basics of two-factor authentication. But for my Microsoft account and my social media accounts and all my Google accounts um, and everything that that has anything that I'm, I'm concerned about, um, I've now turned on two-factor authentication. So um, it's it's an important thing, I think. It means that my cell phone has taken on increased importance because if I lose that, it will be challenging, but not impossible to re you know, to reconfigure that for you know uh, a new phone. But I'm I'm very happy with it so far, and I, f- I feel a sense of security doing that. Um, I would also refer you to um, hi Lily. 
Um, I would also refer you to, um, there's a really wonderful podcast, the Gimlet Podcast Network. Uh, their, uh, one of their inaugural uh, podcasts was, was Reply All, which is a kind of technology and culture podcast. And they have this amazing tale where the, uh, a director of, uh, of, of the Gimlet Media Empire, uh, comes in with a story where basically his, um, uh, Uber account was attacked and the way he knew is because overnight he received, um, text, or I'm sorry, uh, updates from his Uber app thanking him for taking rides and, and I believe that it was in, um, um, Arabic was the, the language of the, 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 um, the notifications and the, it goes through all sorts of, of, of interesting digging to find out whether or not his account been hacked or not. They spent some time on the dark web, uh, they tar, which is a, a, a hidden set of websites, the traffic and this kind of stuff. They find an Uber scammer that will sell you hacked Uber accounts for use. It's, it's an extraordinary podcast, but, um, I was, uh, uh encouraged in part by listening to that excellent episode of Reply All. To then uh, turn on two-factor authentication wherever I could. So I'll disclose that um, on my password manager, which we have been encouraging all our teachers to, I'm up to 138 different accounts, um, and those are unique, you know, long passwords because that's the other piece of the puzzle. Is in addition to two-factor, you need to use uh, different passwords on each website, and ideally be using ones that are not, you know, not guessable. Um, and the other thing I'll just say briefly uh, for an update, I, I um, had told you uh, a while back about a hack, you know, hack that I had to my website. Um, I had a, this. There's a two-factor story to this um, because I had another hack, um, which was much worse. It was a, a MySQL injection hack that put thousands and thousands of lines of code and JavaScript into my MySQL database, which since 2003 has over 5,000 posts on it. And it would be like really crushing to me if this was not usable on the web. I ended up paying $200 to the firm Securi to clean that up for me. Um, have a special firewall now that's protecting my main, my main blog site. But the two-factor story is when we were up in the mountains of California without cell service, guess who couldn't log into his GoDaddy account to change the DNS for you know his website? That would be me um, because yeah, uh, iMessage doesn't work with SMS uh, verification. So little tip there is make sure you also look at backup strategies for two-factor, but then also uh, remember how that keeps you susceptible, right? So if you have two-factor turned on and then you say, uh, make my email account my backup, you know, if somebody hacks your, your email, then they're able right. to uh, yep. back backdoor your two-factor. So hopefully no one listening to this podcast is going to be the victim of a targeted attack. Uh, there's yep. all kinds of things that are just trying to sweepingly get anybody that might be susceptible, but that's very, very good advice. And I just subscribed to the Reply All podcast, and I'll be checking out episode 91, The Russian Passenger. Yeah, it's it's really good. And I would say, and maybe this is something we, should, we did this early on. I think we should go back to doing that, that uh, uh, podcasting is, is just so great and a great way to get wonderful content that you can, you know, utilize while you're exercising or, uh, you know, uh, uh, mowing the lawn or picking weeds in your garden. But um, the Reply All podcast is, is super excellent. It's uh, um, it's not my favorite podcast, which is probably still note to self from WNYC, but um it's great and and kind of dig through those tech and culture questions that I think are um, important for us to think about as teachers. All right. Well, next week we're going to be back. Oh, no, we're, we're at regular time this week. We're just going to just try to, you know, discombobulate everyone, but hey, we're I, I'm, we're here making the show together, so that's exciting. Next week, we'll be back on Wednesday night, however, two hours earlier 
Um, and we're going to be excited to uh, have a, a special guest that will be joining us. Um, we've been having a series of, of guests uh, as Jason has been traversing around, and we probably should have heard a little bit more about your, your wonderful experiences, um, Jason. But Beth Holland, who is uh, actually finishing up her, her doctorate in EdTech, is going to be our guest, and we will be two hours early. So that will be at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific, um, and then uh, we'll be just back to our regular normal schedule on the 19th. So I'm Wes Fryer, W. Fryer on Twitter, Speed of Creativity uh, on my now not SQL injected hacked blog. And I am looking forward to actually attending the Atlas Conference here at the end of the month in L.A., which we talked about with Jen Carey a while back and uh, looking forward to some cybersecurity sessions and some really good digital citizenship sessions. And we'll definitely be tweeting about that. So that's me. And I am Jason Neifer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. Um, I blog fairly regularly at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And you can find out more about my work and um, uh, bringing me into your conference or district at my personal website, www.neifer.com. So this is the EdTech Situation Room. We are here most Wednesday nights, mostly at, at, at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, um, which I believe is uh, six or six hundred UTC. Um, actually, I think I just made that up. But never mind. But <laughs> sometime you're on there, so you're, you're probably not listening to this live anyway. So follow us on Twitter. Uh, That's the secret. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. Uh, EdTechSR uh, is our handle on Twitter, and you can always find links to all the articles we talk about each week at our website www.edtechsr.com. So uh, we wish you a wonderful week wherever you are in the world, and be sure you're working hard to make sure the classrooms are the best they can be for kids. Have a great week. Adios.